Hello, everyone, and welcome to our first Inspiring People podcast series for the Environmental Funders Network. I'm a bit starstruck sitting here with Izzy Tree, Derek Gao, and Alistair Driver, who are, for me at least, I think the three greatest heroes of nature restoration in Britain today, um, and increasingly globally as well, especially in the case of Izzy, whose book has become a global blockbuster bestseller with queues around the block whenever she booked him to speak in in far-flung cities around the world. Um, but before we start, I thought it worth telling people what the Environmental Funders Network is about. Um, I, I've been a passionate nature lover all my life, um, since I can remember, um, heavily influenced by my older brother, Zach, who is now in an environmental role in, 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 in the British government. And um, in 2003 or four, the two of us discovered that less than 2% of all charitable giving in the UK is directed towards tackling the uh, crisis of, of nature depletion and climate and so on. Um, and, and we were staggered by that statistic. And so we thought it might be a good idea to gather the few people in the philanthropic um, community who are focused on the environment around a table to figure out firstly how we might become more effective as environmental philanthropists by working together, sharing information, collaborating on projects and so on. And secondly, how we might um, bring other philanthropists into the environmental field. Because as far as we could make out, um, it doesn't really matter what topic you're working on as a philanthropist. If the environment is trashed, it becomes an irrelevance. Um, development in sub-Saharan Africa becomes pretty difficult in an era of climate change and crippling water shortages, for example, or, um, or the, the issue of refugees when, when my sister Jemima is active on the Pakistan-Afghanistan border becomes harder and harder to tackle in an environment of flash flooding and drought and environmental catastrophe. All roads really do lead to Rome in our view. And so we felt that that was a message we needed to get out to philanthropists in the UK. So we created the Environmental Funders Network really as a kind of trade body or a kind of forum for, for environmental philanthropists. Um, and since then the number's grown a bit. I think the number is now somewhere between three and 4% of total philanthropic giving, which is closer to being in line with with, with similar figures from the United States, and more and more conventional philanthropists are starting to look at the environment as an area for their giving. Um, and and, and I, th I think the, the, the thing that's made our job easier than we thought perhaps it might be is that giving money towards tackling environmental problems is enormously rewarding. Our hedge fund managers and private equity managers talk about leverage in their investing um, activities. Well, when it comes to environmental philanthropy, you really can achieve leverage. Uh, massive problems can be solved with relatively modest sums of money um, if, you, if you give them to the right organizations, the right individuals. It, it's not like building a, a hospital, for example, where brick by brick, machine by machine, you're gonna spend tens of millions of dollars to see any results. When it comes to fixing environmental problems, um, you, you, you can really move mountains with relatively modest sums of money if you're smart about how you spend it. And we're gonna be talking to Derek Gow in a minute who has campaigned um, uh, and educated and hustled on behalf of water voles and beavers and wildcats um, in the UK, all species which have either disappeared or nearly disappeared and where the trend is now turning around because of his work and, and, and that of others. Derek's a prime example of how modest amounts of money can make, can make big changes happen. So this is the first of our series. Um, and um, in, 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 I think I'll let these three brilliant speakers introduce themselves. So um, perhaps Izzy, uh, you might do so first up. 
Uh, yes. Um, hello, I'm, I'm Isabella Tree. Um, uh, with my husband, Charlie Burrell, we own Nep Estate, which has um, become a rewilding project. We turned over from a conventional um, arable and dairy farm in the year 2000 because we just couldn't make farming work on our very heavy soils here. And our rewilding project in a very short space of time, in about 20 years, um, has shown some really astonishing results. Um, and I've written a book called Wilding off the back of that, which explains our story and, and what's happened here and, and how we think it can roll out to other places um, in, in Britain and elsewhere. Thanks, Izzy. Um, and, uh, and Alistair. Hi, folks. Uh, I'm Alistair Driver. Uh, I'm uh, director of Rewilding Britain. I, I, I'm, I call myself a country naturalist. I was brought up in the Cotswolds in the middle of nowhere. And um, I've been an ecologist and naturalist all my life. And um, I was lucky enough to become the first conservation officer working on rivers in this country when I became conservation officer for the Thames Water Authority in 1984. And I went on to become national head of conservation for the Environment Agency. So I've, I worked in public service for 34 years. So um, obviously uh, ha had to work uh, alongside uh, government agencies and NGOs and, and was actually less able in those circumstances to access philanthropic funding. Now I'm helping uh, to, to run the organization Rewilding Britain and, and philanthropic funding is much more important uh, to us in, in, in that capacity, but also much more important generally nowadays anyway. So really keen to have a chance to talk about, about this. And Derek, Derek Gow. Well, you Ben and you Izzy know how much we've accomplished over the last five years and none of it would have been possible without philanthropic funding. You know, it's very, very difficult to go to organizations which have established roots of giving, you know, be they institutionalized and thought like, um, um, you know, the, the, the wilder trusts or, or be they, um, you, know, you know, set in stone when it comes to government and say, look, you know, we need cash to do something that's completely different. That might involve a degree of risk, that involves a degree of uncertainty, but where we, we, we think we have a chance of pulling it off. And without that, that kind of approach to, to, to looking at species like wildcats or beavers or white storks, we, we wouldn't be anywhere with these things. We wouldn't be discussing them now. We wouldn't have those birds, um, you know, breeding on that oak in Net Park if it hadn't been for the studies that, that your organization funded at the beginning, Ben, and, and then for the, the work and the the, 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 the support that Charlie and Izzy put towards the project. And, and when you look at, you know, I think it's, it's, it's a really great analogy. You look at this time of COVID and desperation um, and despair and, and people really wondering what life's about. And, and then you see the Stork project starting. And right at the beginning when we talked about it, you know, we spoke to the Europeans, they all said, it's hope. This bird comes back and is welcomed everywhere. We've restored them because it's a totem of landscape change, but just, just something that's naturally good. And then you look at the response there has been to this this year, and it's been overwhelming. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I, my, my view is that, that, that the silver lining of this terrible crisis is that people have had time to dwell upon what really matters in their lives, whether that's time with family or um, just, just time to stop and sit still but also streets which are free of traffic and air which is clear. Um, mm -hmm. Newspapers are full of stories of you know, dolphins in the harbour at Trieste and wild boar families trotting through the deserted streets of Berlin. People living in northern India can see the Himalayas for the first time in, in a generation or two. 
And, and I think that, that, that this is the first economic crisis where nature won't be forgotten um, in the recovery. I actually think that nature is going to be at the center of the recovery. And we've already seen that in terms of Germany's economic recovery plans, nature making up well over a quarter of, 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 uh, of, of the money that the German government's going to be spending. Um, hopefully the same will be true here. And I think that rewilding is particularly relevant because it's a story of hope, exactly as Derek says. Um, so, so, so much of the environmental movement really has kind of flipped the Martin Luther King quote on its head. And instead of I have a dream, it's I have a nightmare. And, and, and they're right to have a nightmare. We are right to have a nightmare. There's, there's lots of terrible things out there happening that we need to fight hard to stop. But when it comes to rewilding and species reintroductions and rebuilding ecosystems in an ambitious way, it's really um, it's a story of hope. Um, it's a story in which we can uh, we can create something better even that our parents and grandparents saw. Um, and, and, and so I, I thought maybe a useful way to start this discussion would be to ask in particular Izzy what she means by the term rewilding, because it's a term that I didn't know growing up and it really has caught the public imagination. I think it's, it's obviously a very new term um, and I think it's, it's sort of being redefined all the time. Um, I think from our point of view, from a, a landscape scale pr perspective, it's about allowing nature to sit in the driving seat for a bit, um, to surrender control as human managers. Um, conventional conservation is all about protecting for a particular species often, or a suite of species or a given habitat. And that really means controlling nature and locking it down, um, holding it in stasis, which um, conventional conservation obviously has been hugely important. Without that, we wouldn't, that's our Noah's arcs, if you like. Uh, lots more species would have gone extinct, habitats would have been lost. But the, it's not really functioning. We know that species across the board are still declining. Um, and it's also a very expensive, time consuming, um, often high carbon way of trying to protect nature. And what we've seen, I think, from what, what, what's happened at, at NEP and other places with, that are rewilding is that it's actually um, just letting go of the steering wheel, allowing um, drivers to take over, whether that's going to be free roaming animals, free roaming herbivores, or allowing um, uh, natural hydrology to function again, suddenly kickstarts the, the, the functioning of nature again in a really, really effective way. So, I think that's what rewilding is, is mostly about, is about standing back. And of course, as human beings, we are naturally control freaks. We feel that we're not doing something unless we're working at it or we're controlling or managing. So essentially, I think rewilding is about rewilding our own mindset. Um, and I think that applies across the board, whether you have a large piece of land, an orchard, a vegetable garden, your own backyard. It's about how do I let go of my prejudices and my preconceived ideas about how to control this space and give it to nature. 75% of Britain is farmland. And, and in fact, NEP is still producing food in, in quite some bulk, ultra free range, delicious beef and pork and venison and so on. Alistair, do you think that wilder farming is a better way of describing the kind of work that's happening at NEP, the kind of changes we want to see in Britain's agriculturally marginal landscapes. Derek's also a farmer um, who's, who's rewilding his farm in, in Devon, and we're going to hear about that. Yeah, it depends where you are. Um, I think, you, you know, we must always remember that rewilding is a spectrum of activity. Um, it is trying to move us uh, continually towards less control, 
and allowing nature to take more of a lead as Izzy has explained. And if you went all the way up that spectrum, you would end up with wilderness where nature is in total control. <laughs> we accept that in a really crowded country with many pressures on the land, it's not necessarily going to be possible to go all that way to wilderness at, at scale and scale matters very much. And maybe we can talk about that later. But so there are different degrees of farming. Some people call it sort of slightly cynically, you know, um, rewilding light or re-farming. I don't really mind that kind of jibe because, the, you know, farming has to play a part in this. But generally speaking, in the lowland, you're going you're gonna to see more examples like NEP, where there are still quite a lot of animals producing meat on, on, in a rewilding initiative. Um, whereas in the uplands, you're going to see f proportionally far fewer animals per unit area. Um, but there will almost certainly have to be some form of interaction between grazing animals and, and, uh, and vegetation and soils in order to re replicate as close as you can the natural heterogeneity of that landscape. So if there have to be herbivores in that environment, and if you haven't yet got all the right carnivores that might be managing those herbivores naturally, then man has to act as the carnivore. And if that means harvesting some of those animals and selling the produce, then so be it. I, you know, we, we shouldn't get precious about this. We should be prepared to move up that spectrum continually and go as far as we can in any given location whilst making sure it works economically. Derek, will you tell us what you're doing at Upcut Grange Farm? Because you're a, far, a lifelong farmer. You know, you've got rid of the sheep, changing things dramatically there and you're not on the scale of NEP, what are you doing and how are you going to make it work? Well, that's a very interesting question. The only way to make it work is to hope and pray for elms and possibly do a bit of consultancy, but also it's to, um, it's to look at what we can do with people. So, I mean, Izzy's, you know, just was chatting before we began about the number of people that want to come to NEP right now and see the storks and see what's happening there. And we're hoping we're going to get, you know, not in those kind of numbers or anything like it, but people coming to stay in the shepherd's huts that we've put in place at the moment to look over a, overlook a panorama that will seem big, but in reality small of, of heck cattle, um, Exmoor ponies, wild boar, and, um, and mouflon grazing freely through what was half of our farm. In the valley bottom, there are, are many beavers, which are cha have changed completely the hydrology of, of the river catchment and its headwaters, and, and indeed the wildlife that can use it. So that's what we're looking to do. But but at the moment, that it's it's though there is a lot of talk about rewilding and how we're going to do it, and it seems to be the case the government are moving towards a support package for. For, for, for ecological restoration rather than just keeping people farming for the, the sake of farming. At the moment, there is no clear financial basis um, with regard to how we make this work. But the other thing I would like to say is that, I mean, obviously, when you look at the remarkable thing that is NEP and the wildlife that's come into to a landscape which was intensively farmed, it has just been astounding. But my, my work and the things I've, I've done through the course of my career have also principally focused on restoring things that simply are not mobile, that can't be there unless we put them there. So things like wildcats hunting to extinction in England by the time you get to the First World War are now so diminished in Scotland that left to their own devices, they're going to become extinct. Um, 
if we don't act on behalf of that species using the European models that are for the restoration, then there only will be one end. There will not be recovery now. We're in the last chance saloon. And, and therefore, there are quite a broad guild of species for which this still applies. Having said that, I would also like to say it's surprising. I have no, no, no moral issues at all with regard to intervention when it comes to any species, be it a, a bottle sedge or a water vole. But just the other day, I was out with Hannah from the Wildlife Trust. We went round um, some, some wildflower um, areas that we're actually reseeding with yellow rattle to weaken the pasture grasses that we have there um, to allow plantains to come through to create a much more um, diverse, rich, pollen-rich sward for the insects that are coming in increasing numbers. And for the first time ever, we found a bottle sedge. Now, bottle sedges are these amazing plants that can be 100 years old. They look like a trifid. We hadn't even noticed it in the corner of the field. And it's common where the animals have disturbed the soil obviously reactivated the old seed base and there is a bottle sedge which is about two or three years old and I did not think that would be possible. So I think as we go down this route there are going to be constant surprises but part of it's also going to be doing. So Derek you referred to elms. Um, for those of our listeners to, on this podcast who don't know what elms is, it refers to environmental land management scheme and in my view it's the biggest win for nature that we've ever seen in this country because for the last 40 years during our time as members of the European Union, under the common agricultural policy, farming has been subsidized initially on the basis of production, and more recently, just simply on the basis of the amount of area that you're farming. In other words, no real conditions attached to that money, no conditions around environmental stewardship, for example, and a clear incentive to farm every square inch, no matter what its suitability for farming is like. Um, that has been done away with, um, by, initially by Michael Gove, as Secretary of State at DEFRA, and it's being replaced with a system that Michael refers to as public money for public good, um, or ELMS, Environmental Land Management Scheme, in which farmers will be directly and solely rewarded for the delivery of public environmental goods. In other words, for the restoration and stewardship of nature. Um, so there will be a direct and clear incentive for farmers and land managers to change the way they manage their land for the benefit of nature. And I, I can't conceive of a bigger win for the natural environment than that. And, and, and now it's, it's up to um, all of the country's environmental NGOs, as well as farming groups, the public and philanthropists to pull together to make sure that implementation is done right so that we really do feel the benefits. Don't forget that more than 80% of the food we produce in this country is produced on just 20 to 25% of the land. I just wanted to come in on that. So certainly this, this proposed ELM scheme is the most significant uh, opportunity we've had um, to get policy shift to work for us to work more closely with nature. It's the biggest opportunity I've seen in my lifetime. But we need to see it through. It is in transition through Parliament, as you know, at the moment. And the, the devil will be in the detail. The principles are sound and, and it has the potential to be really, really far reaching. One thing we are asking for specifically is that we secure the mention of rewilding as an option in the future ELM scheme, um, because uh, we need to we need to get over this hurdle of people thinking, oh, it's a, a scary word and you know it's something to be afraid of. I think the NEP and and many other sites around the country actually now have demonstrated that it's nothing to be afraid of. Actually, rewilding in Alan NEP and and uh, Ennerdale etc. is a great thing for wildlife, it's a great thing for people, and it's a great thing 
for the environment as a whole and then a, potentially if it's done properly a great thing for the local economy and, and, and communities in rural areas which are uh, in, in a marginal state when it comes to farming. But we do have to see it through and make sure that we now seize that moment and get rewilding embedded in future policy as an option. You know, not something we do everywhere. Rewilding Britain has an ambition for 5% of the country to be rewilded by 2100. That is a challenging target in itself. But if we had that much rewilding across the country, we would see a massive transformation in our biodiversity resource and a massive transformation in the ecosystem services like reduce flood risk, improve water quality, carbon sequestration, etc. I, I recently watched a documentary called The Serengeti Rules that was produced by the BBC, which describes the growing understanding that scientists have of the importance of certain species in the landscape and the term used to describe those species are keystones in the same way that a medieval bridge has keystones that, that if removed the bridge collapses. Izzy I wonder if you might just elaborate a little bit on on, on this concept um, and, and the relevance of it to the work you've done at NEP and, and, and presumably in that context you're going to talk about beavers let's have Derek uh, give us the, uh, the, uh, the, the elevator pitch for beavers after that. Certainly leave beavers to Derek. <laughs> um, and I mean, hopefully we'll, we, we have a license um, uh, to uh, introduce beavers here, but unfortunately, because of lockdown and everything, it won't be until the autumn, but I can't wait for the day. Um, yeah, so uh, yes, the idea of keystone species is, is so fascinating. And I think the most uh, famous story is of the introduction of the wolf into Yellowstone National Park in the States, where um, just the introduction of that one single species, an apex predator, had such a massive knock-on effect, a trophic cascade, that it affected literally how rivers moved. And that was because the, the wolf um, moved on and predated on the predominant deer species and elk, moving them out of the riparian plains and the riverbanks, which then allowed the beavers to come up um, because they, there was coppicing to be done with all the re resurgent vegetation. And then of course the beaver dams created opportunities for insects and fish and then the birds of prey. Um, the whole thing cascaded because of this one species slotting in. But I think what's very interesting from the work of someone like Franz Vera, who a Dutch ecologist who um, really has influenced um, Europe to tremendous extent, these huge and small rewilding projects going on in Europe at the moment and very much influenced what we are thinking when we started to do NEP was that large herbivores also are a keystone species. So if you have um, la large herbivores, um, even de-domesticated de animals using cattle in place of the extinct aurochs, the original ox, or like we have Exmoor ponies working in place of the tarpan, the extinct tarpan, um, Tamworth pigs being very good imitators of Tamworth of, of wild boar. Um, the way that these animals interact with vegetation, the way they disturb the ground, um, the way um, just their dung and their urine on the soil has a massive knock-on effect, um, not on, only on soil restoration, but also on creating that, the messy margins with that interaction with vegetation, which is rocket fuel for biodiversity. So I think we're beginning to recognize that actually many more species may be keystone than we originally thought. Um, dung beetles is another one that's come back in 
I mean, unbelievable, unimaginable numbers at NEP because our dung is now organic. Um, and of course, that's a huge rapid transformation, the way they bring down the dung back into the soil um, in terms of soil function. Um, and because of the dung beetles, we now have um, owls and particularly little owls burgeoning at NEP. So um, really, really interesting how um, you can speed up, as, as uh, if you like, the rewilding process by introducing keystone species. Derek, will you please tell us about a key plank of your life's work, which is awakening the British people and, in fact, the European people to the importance of beavers in our landscapes? Bloody beavers. Um, okay, uh, before I start with beavers, I would like, I mean, picking up from where Izzy was, the other one, I mean, the thing is, you can't look at any one of these species and say it's that one. I mean, if you, if you just give you an example, um, you know, if I were asked, you know, what the other great architect of landscapes, you know, is now, I would say boar. And then without these animals, you can't disturb seedbeds adequately. You can't um, have have this area between land and water, which if you give a three-year-old a, a, a blue pen and a green pen, they'll draw you a pond, and then they'll draw green around the edge. And that that understanding we have of, of one environment and another environment is just ridiculous. But adults have that as well. And the, the, what boar do and beavers do is by dropping trees into to the water, creating woody debris, they create living space for other things. But what the boar do in addition to this is they go right the way around the edge of this complex environment and they bring the water into the land and take the land into the water. So every single species that we look at as part of this guild has an architectural role and without getting nuts about what we can and can't do from a restoration point of view, George was right about elephants. We know I was walking through the woodland yesterday, you look at the dying ash, you look at the clearings and Sure, the big game animals are opening trails and the boar are making their wallows, and the beavers are flooding the flatland, but there isn't anything in there now of a size that's capable of crunching these trees down and making the clearings that the butterflies are going to dance in. So, but beavers, when it comes to beavers, well, beavers have been a very big part of my life. Um, I think we started with them, I started with them in the mid mid to mid 1990s at a time when when it was the preserve of freaks and lunatics and everybody who tried to do anything with beavers in the past had failed um ted green has a wonderful story about taking a trip of you know with with foresters and ecologists all of whom were pretty skeptical to switzerland at that time and out of all the trees you could find in a riverbank just outside zurich the bloody beavers had decided they were going to fell, fell this massive old black poplar. And he said you could virtually hear the opponents in your own nature conservation group gibbering with delight at the prospect of the beavers taking this tree down. So it's been really, really difficult. There were no captive beavers in zoos. There were very few beavers in, 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 in Western Europe that were available. So this whole journey of actually getting to a point where we've got animals now living wild in Britain, animals in captivity, which we could, we could work with to reinforce that population. But also, you know, the acceptance at a very high political level. And when we start to talk about philanthropic giving and philanthropic influence, as you know, again, perfectly well, Ben, and Charlie, it's not just been down to money. It's also been down to having a guild of people who can actually go 
behind the scenes in government and behind the political scenes, behind the, the scenes with landowners to say, look, really, we should give this, this idea some thought. We should talk about it. We should, we should look at its merits. And we should, you know, maybe not just make that decision to, to, to launch an outright ban now and doing anything with them, which has made all the difference in the end. And before that, in the 70s and 60s, when this was talked about, these things never happened. It was always stopped, it always crumbled, it always failed. So the beaver thing has been a long, long journey. It's not a keystone species. The North Americans have got it right. This animal, above and beyond everything else, is a force of nature. Nothing holds the water, nothing purifies the water, nothing creates living space in the riparian environments which are quite simply as vast as we will allow them to become like the beavers. So if you don't have beavers, you don't have wetland life. If you don't have wetland life, you're missing out the richest living environment there is on the planet. So restoring the beavers is not a rewilding thing. It's down to looking at this animal from a cultural point of view and saying that this mechanism needs to be there in the landscape. We know that we can't hold them in pens. Sure, we could do it for a while, but in the end, God has created a creature that's, a, that's got bolt cutters on its face, and one day they will be on the rivers doing what we want them to do. And, and that's the point that we've now reached with this animal, is we're nearly politically there with it. You know, we're on the cusp of everything changing and moving from a time where it's been softly, softly, gently, gently, to one where we say we're going to jump and we're going to move on to the next stage. And that's entirely to be welcomed. If I can just add to that, um, the, the key thing to remember is that we have a biodiversity crisis. We have a climate emergency. So we need to crack on with this. You know, we cannot just wait until beavers eventually spread from Scotland or the few populations that are out in the wild in, in England. We need to get on and do this, and we need to do it at scale and we need to do it quickly. And we've got the strategy in place. People like Derek and myself and others have been working on this for years now. We have a proper strategy. We know what we need to do. We know where we need to do it. We need to get on and make it happen. And perhaps this is the moment for a plug for the new Beaver Trust, which has corralled 60 or 70 of uh, a really diverse 60 or 70 NGOs behind a hard hitting letter to government on, on the need for an ambitious beaver restoration strategy. Um, yeah. Alistair, where can people listening to this podcast go and see rewilding? And uh, can, can you tell us a few few stories around um, big ambitious projects that have that have that have followed the net bleed? Yeah, I, I mean there are some I can't tell you about because the landowners uh, in question have asked it to be re remain confidential for the time you being. You can hint at them though. Uh, but I, there are plenty I can now tell you about, so I don't need to worry about those I can't. Um, so, first of all, the, the, the interesting thing is there's a lot of rewilding happening where the landowner or the tenants or both don't call it rewilding or they're not ready to call it rewilding yet. And that, that actually applies to the NGOs, the, the likes of the RSPB and the National Trust. They are doing rewilding at scale in places like Eastern Moors near Sheffield, like Dovestone near Manchester. Horswater. Uh, Ennerdale is called a rewilding project by the National Trust, but and yet there are other places that they work where they're not openly describing it as such. It's a slight, it is slightly strange, but it is mainly to do with sensitivities around neighbours and tenants and commoners' rights and all this sort of thing. However, if you go to those places that I've just mentioned, you will see natural regeneration happening at scale. 
you will see you will have seen massive reduction in sheep numbers you will see rare breed animals roaming around uh, in small numbers in upland situations then there are private landowners like those at ken hill in norfolk and the heppel estate right up in northumberland which produces the most amazing gin um, but is now actively rewilding with its tenants on board i went to see the tenants and the landowner together a year or so ago we had a great conversation and they are all on the same journey together at the same same speed ready to make these big changes in the landscape uh, in terms of mainly in terms of reducing sheep numbers and allowing natural regeneration but other interventions as well so lots of examples starting to crop up i mean just in the last week i've had three more large-scale initiatives brought to my attention including by the way a marine one off the coast of sussex magnificent izzy what what's been the reaction of um what's been the reaction of your neighbors to what you've done at nep and also what's been the reaction of conservationists um to, to the project well in the early days uh, our mailbag from neighbors was <laughs> astronomical and you sincerely discussed letters coming through the door every day um <laughs> And I think that's, you know, in a sense, it's not surprising because I think that the changes that can happen under rewilding happen quite quickly, especially with the pioneer species coming in. The landscape, that, that landscape we have in our heads of a very neat, orderly, managed land, you know, the picture postcard we have in our heads of England's green and pleasant land becomes something very different, very wild and woolly very quickly. And so I think it takes some adjusting to, to get used to. But I think now it's only it's less than 20 years since we began and we now have, you know, such sort of big headline species. And I um, that that began to change people's minds as soon as we had nightingales and turtle doves and purple emperors coming back. Um, I think most people on our borders began to see that there was method in our madness. Um, we've even had some letters recently. We had one woman who wrote um, about 15 years ago saying um, you've turned a beautiful landscape into an abomination. Um, and we got a letter from her last year saying, apologizing and saying she was felt very ashamed for having written that letter because she now walks through NEP and she listens to the bird song and she sees these free roaming animals and she thinks that it is beautiful still, but in a very different way. And so I think it, it is about changing that aesthetic um, uh, that, that is quite uncomfortable for most people, including us, I think. You know, when I think about where I grew up as a child, um, I know it was a very barren landscape, but I'm not nostalgically attached to that. Um, and so it's it's letting go of that nostalgia that that binds you to a certain place and to think how much richer it could be for future generations if you if you allow it to function properly. I'd say that the net project has quite literally turned conservation thinking on its head for those very reasons. Alistair. Yeah, so I, I was just going to add to that. I, I think NEP has been so important in so many different ways. But if I had to pick one, one way which has really, and it's, it's helped to change my mind. You know, I'm a traditional nature conservationist. I worked on hundreds, if not thousands, of nature reserve-y type projects, creating wetlands and restoring rivers and creating nature reserves and protected sites. And the one, I'd say above all, all the many attributes of NEP, the one thing it's done is, is blown a lot of the preconceived ideas about wildlife and certain species and where they belong and where they don't belong. It's blown it, blown it out of the water, you know, with the Purple Emperor, 
story and nightingales and and uh, you know the whole range of species that one can see at net and hear at net now in situations which previously we thought oh that won't be suitable for them and and that is what and that so on first of all it's it kicked a lot of that stuff into touch and made people like me think much more openly but also what it's done is it's been massively inspiring to all these other landowners around the country. virtually all the landowners that contact me uh, as they now do on a regular basis contact rewilding britain they have either been to nep or they've read his, his book or they've they've heard about it read articles about it and and uh, it's wonderful that we have that now we need a nep in every county at the very that's, least because we need to multiply this up a hundredfold yeah absolutely I, th I think we can't have this discussion without tipping the nod to george monbiot's book feral which which also has helped stretch that overton window um and, and and to open people's minds to the idea of kind of hands-off ambitious nature restoration um I, I, which brings me to the to, to, to the notion of returning wolves bears and bison moose back to the uk um to my mind all of these things should happen um i i think that the public more and more feels the same and derek you're working on a project now around wolves um are you able to tell us a little bit about that yeah, I can tell you a little bit about it. There's going to have to be a fair degree of refereeing in it, and there's going to have to be a fair degree of thinking about it by the time before the thing is finished. But I'm looking at the history of the wolf in Britain, and like a kind of like like mammoth DNA, when you dig it out of the the the, the permafrost and you have a look at it, it's all over the place. You haven't got a complete strand. So what we got to do when we look at the history of this animal in Britain is assemble the strands that we can assemble, and there are quite a few of those. Um, more perhaps, especially by the time you start to look at the other languages, Gaelic, um, you know, Old Welsh, Irish, than, 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 than we thought were initially available. See what sense they make and then go to have a look at what was perhaps happening in Brittany, um, you know, in the 1800s, which the British participated quite wholeheartedly in as individuals, what's happening in modern North America, what's happening in modern Europe. But but the wolf story is, you know, when you start to talk about rewilding and landscapes change and, and, and species reintroduction, the wolf is the one that, that people get excited about in a positive way and excited about in a negative way. And if you speak to the Danish scientists that are working with them today, they will tell you quite happily it's an animal that divides the water. There is no middle ground on this creature. It's either a no or it's a yes. So what I hope to do is I hope to look at, at the old evidence, I hope to look at the old stories, those that are nonsense, and those that actually have some quite, quite illuminating insights, um, assemble those, and then basically, you know, in the end, it will be presenting a case um, for, for a sentient process of thought that reconsiders the reintroduction of the wolf in a measured way. I mean, after all, these animals are right up to the French coast now. They're, they're, they're recolonizing countries in very low numbers where they haven't been for, for centuries. But the thing that really has changed, and in this, I think, there is huge optimism, is that when you read the medieval accounts of the penalties that were imposed for not killing them for the thing of the things that we did to them which are beyond belief and certainly well beyond any requirement of of, of predator management or predator control is that to do these things and to wipe this animal clean from the slate of britain you needed to have the whole of society with you everybody needed to agree 
that these things were demonic and they had to be killed. And now when you look at modern continental Europe and, and North America, society doesn't think in that way. Sure, some people still want to do barbaric things and some people want them gone. But very many other people look at this animal in a different way and take different kinds of inspiration from its presence. And I think there's tremendous hope in that. Yeah, I agree, Derek, wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly. The storks have been in the news a lot, Izzy. And I think this is a really interesting story for this particular discussion on the basis that there was a role for philanthropists who hadn't even been to net in supporting the return of the stork to Great Britain. Are you able to tell that story briefly? Yeah, it, it's been amazing. Um, it's, it's been a, a sort of big collaboration. Uh, it started off uh, with Warsaw Zoo. So we um, were given crippled uh, white, white storks, um, adult white storks that, that had been in a car crash or, you know, hit on the road or uh, uh, hit some, some electric wires, whatever and when were flightless birds. We imported them to Cotswold Wildlife Park, uh, where Reggie Hayworth um, has been absolutely amazing. And it was just his decision to, to run the project and to enable these birds to be, um, uh, to, to, to go through quarantine in the zoo. Um, and he is now um, running a whole breeding program, really at his own expense at Cotswold Wildlife Park's expense. Um, and then we now have um, a partner, Daryl Foundation, um, thanks to a philanthropist who supports them. Uh, it pays for um, our stork officer here at NEP to be in charge of the whole project and uh, breeding the storks um, here at NEP. And two other landowners um, have uh, pens on their land too, uh, in East Sussex, Lisbeth Rousing and Nick Hutley in Surrey. Um, they have um, put stork pens, as we have, at their own expense. So the feeding and the running of that, those little breeding programs, the, the breeding sites, um, is all down to, to individuals, really, and then these small organisations. And of course, Roy Dennis Foundation giving us the kind of expertise of how to, how to manage a, a reintroduction of, of, of a species like this. And will they spread out? I mean, we've seen that they're now breeding successfully at NEP. Will they make their way to London? Are we going to see them on the church roofs in the suburbs? Wouldn't that be wonderful? I hope not just the suburbs. Wouldn't it be great to see some nesting on St Paul's Cathedral one day? Um, yeah, I mean, they're already everywhere. Um, we had one white stork that landed on a, a trawler in Cornwall the other day, went out to sea and came back on the trawler and then, <laughs> then took off after they'd given it some fish. Uh, we've got one white stork in Spain at the moment, hanging out in some landfill sites, not hugely ecological, but that's, that's um, being proved to be very supportive for populations of white storks in Europe. Uh, one's in France. Um, one of the birds that's just breeding here at NEP um, had been one of our um, uh, 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 pen birds that had gone off to, to um, Europe within two months of being here. So even with clipped wings, it had managed to fly across the channel and hang out in Brittany and Normandy for a year and a half. And it's come back to the pen, picked up one of its cohorts and nested up in an oak tree. So in literally within um, two months, we had sort of defied the naysayers who said, oh, well, these, these white storks will never be able to cross the channel and get back to, to the continent. And what's also exciting is that another of the pair, um, the other pair that's, that's now breeding up in one of the oak trees um, is a wild bird. And so already we're showing that, that wild populations are being attracted in, as was, was, we hoped, by this, this cohort of, of sort of hefted 
uh, English white storks. Um, so it's been incredibly inspiring and we've just had a Polish breakfast TV crew down. Um, it kicked off a huge excitement in Poland because they discovered that our original birds were from Warsaw Zoo. And there's now this kind of Polish-English bond um, over, over white storks. And uh, the response to this daytime TV show um, in Poland was hundreds of viewers um, sending in ideas for Polish names for some of our chicks. So we're, we're, <laughs> they're going to have some very unpronounceable Polish names quite soon. Alistair. Yeah, I just wanted to um, explain that the, the, these initiatives, like the Storks, uh, like the Devon Beaver Project, the, the White-tailed Eagles on the Isle of Wight, the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts here because not only does it, is it doing something for those species and, and the species that they then benefit around them in their chosen ecosystems and habitats, but it is inspiring the public to engage. You know, they are, these are genuinely flagship uh, activities that are drawing people in you know the number of people who now are suddenly aware of these things they know what I do they know I work for rewilding Britain they'll they'll come and talk to me down the pub about those eagles on on the Isle of Wight what's going on there you know will we see them around here and it is it is in engendering and and promoting a conversation about why we need to do these things um, from, from my perspective of course think boring things like the soil and the heterogeneity of the vegetation are really important, but that's not what captures people imagine, people's imagination. It's it's it's, it's species, and we and we shouldn't be afraid or embarrassed um, to to emphasize that these the, these the importance of this species work when it comes to philanthropic support. I completely agree. It's 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 building a sense of national momentum around the effort finally to start restoring the terribly depleted natural fabric of our country. And, and I think I think what we also need are totemic landscape scale projects. So so not just NEPs in every county, but what about restoring the Somerset levels to, 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 to their former glory? Somerset levels once the, the Okavango Delta of, of Western Britain, if not Western Europe. What about the Great Fens? What about the Greater Stonehenge landscape? A hundred thousand acres of Mesolithic grasslands. Um, what about the Pennines, the Lake District? To, to what extent are we going to see some really major, ambitious, landscape-scale rewilding projects take place in Britain in the coming years, Alistair? And, and what do we need to do to make them happen? You know, that's a massive challenge, Ben. You know, all those places you've just mentioned, uh, particularly Somerset Levels and, and the Fens. For me, you know, when people ask me, well, if you had a magic wand, all other things being equal, where would you start? Those are the places I would start because wetlands respond so rapidly uh, to, the, to, to the opportunity to rewild. You get instant gratification. And, uh, and uh, it really, they are really great opportunities, but we are going to need very significant changes in attitudes from the top. And I mean, you know, for example, from Treasury. Treasury needs to understand that the health of society, the health of our economy is dependent on the health of our environment. And we can generate massive economic and environmental benefits from rewilding in these large uh, wetland areas and indeed in some of our more remote upland areas where at the moment uh, there is very little of any economic value and actually quite a lot of detriment coming from poor flood risk management, 
poor water quality, poor carbon sequestration. So it, it is going to require significant changes in policy, not just schemes like the ELM scheme, which are brilliant. Uh, it's going to need a wholesale change in thinking. So let, let's just dwell on that for a moment. As you say, in a lot of these agriculturally marginal landscapes, intensive farming is not only bringing about ecological, ongoing ecological desecration, but it's also bringing economic costs in the form of flooding, drought, and that cycle, um, soil erosion, and so on. But it's also not paying. Um, uh, the, 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 the ability of an upland intensive sheep farm to provide a family with a living on which they can actually live is really in question. So how does rewilding offer a better economic outcome for communities living in some of these marginal landscapes? Well, we have to remember, Ben, this is not the farmer's fault. You know, I, I will never point the finger at the farming community for this. It is policy that has driven this approach. And you talked earlier about the common agricultural policy, which has driven us down this road in recent decades. What we have to do is demonstrate that rewilding is an option for some parts of those landscapes. And it's an option in terms of the opportunity for society to uh, recompense the landowners for the way they manage their land through reducing flood risk, improving water quality, etc. That is a right and just thing that society should pay for that. But it's also an opportunity to move into a new era of nature-based economic activity. And I'm absolutely certain that we are barely scratching the surface with that in this country. NEP is a great example, and you can see other examples around ospreys and and uh, and white-tailed eagles on mull. It is possible to do these kind of rewilding-related activities and gener generate genuine inc new income, genuine extra jobs. And um, we need to build on that and start to de uh, develop those opportunities fast. The problem with that, though, is when you look at it. I mean, I, I, I appreciate what you say about farming, Alistair. But then you look at the leadership it's shown, and that and that yeah. organisation has connived completely with government and completely with math and completely with DEFRA and completely with politicians to produce a status quo that has ended in this. And so when you look at the mental health, I mean, I'm surrounded by small farmers here, and and it's sometimes a cripplingly sad thing to see what this money has done to them. Because when you look at their 40, 50 grand coming in a year, and that's what these wee guys are dependent on, it hasn't even made people happy. It's made some people very ill and done terrible things to women and terrible things to children. And, and communities have disintegrated around what happens because all that happens is you get your money every year and every single overhead you've got comes in and sweeps it all away and then you start your next year of failure from that platform. So it really does need to change. But the problem with this is that you have a mindset that really is, you know, we're here to farm. So when we look at Elms and the positive stuff, I was speaking to Kevin Cox from the RSPB this morning. And, um, you know, that, you know, Dartmoor, Bodmin, the big moorlands, they're having these co collaborative meetings about how they prepare themselves for Elms and get their Elms funding bids together. And their Elms funding bids are all being discussed by farmers. And what these farmers are trying to do is fit what they're doing on paper to suit the funding without changing anything at all. And what they don't want 
is they don't want anybody coming in to talk to them about what's going to happen, who is a different or, or, or independent um, mindset at all. They want the national parks, who quite compliantly are going along with them on this, to be their, their sole sounding base um, for their idea of what Elm should be. And they're basically going to try and get the loot for doing the same as they've always done. That's, that's obviously the intent of this. So, so in this, there is, I agree, there's tremendous hope without a shadow of a doubt, but we've got some huge fundamental problems um, that we're going to have to address quite clearly if we're going to make much of this work at all. Is there a role, in, in the opinion of any of our three guests, for large numbers of sheep in any circumstance in Britain? Or put um, no. differently, or, or put no. differently, put differently, is there any form of upland sheep farming, in your view, that should be rewarded with taxpayer money through the elms? I've had a lot to do with sheep. Is it okay with the others if I speak about this first? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I think if you're looking at sheep in the way that you see sheep managed in continental Europe, in, in the uplands of continental Europe, whereby you have shepherds following them, in low numbers, moving through the landscape, pruning it, shaping it, in a way that is amazing, can be amazingly sympathetic, then there is a role for sheep, if people want to buy them. And this is the central problem with sheep, is that when you, you look at their history in huge numbers here, they come in in the 1100s and they come in for the wool trade. After that, you know, yes, of course, people eat them. They use their, their hides to form vellum and parchment. They're used for a, a variety of different things. But once the wool trade ends, these animals are here to produce fertility. And after that, then, yeah, I mean, they're used for meat, they're used for wool, they're used for a variety of different things. But the acceleration in their existence on this island doesn't really start until you get to the highland clearances, at which point in time, again, you have people, um, you know, taking cattle off the mountains, taking people off the mountains to, to replace them with sheep, deer and grouse. So their history is incredibly jaded as... Uh, on the basis of any kind of production at all. And you're really struggling now to look at this commodity, um, or, or sheep as a commodity, and to say, well, they actually have a clear future in any way, shape, and form. So I don't really know. I mean, if you're not going to keep sheep and have them produced in Britain on a scale that the market actually wants, and those animals are high-quality animals, um, you know, scoffing herbs in the uplands doing a good job, why on earth are we subsidising it? It makes not a blind bit of different, a blind bit of sense as far as I can see. So look, we're into our last couple of minutes. I, I, I guess the uh, the last question we have is uh, for for either Alistair or Izzy. If someone has a piece of land, large or small, that they wish to rewild, what should they do? Who should they call? What book should they buy? What website should they visit? <laughs> Well, you go first, Izzy. Maybe I could plug my new book. <laughs> uh, Charlie, Charlie and I are, are, are working right now on um, the Wilding Handbook um, because I think we, we've been approached by so many people saying, you know, we, we haven't got a size of net. We've got 100 acres, 20 acres of back garden. Um, what can we do? And so the idea of this book is to try and... Um, uh, apply some of the principles of rewilding to any sort of scale as as Alistair says you know on this sort of spectrum of always thinking of how to get 
wilder. Um, and at the core of it, one of the themes is going to be connectivity, how you can connect together. And we hope that at the back of the book, we'll have um, you know, contacts and, and bibliography and uh, information there. But of course, Rewilding Britain too is, is a kind of hub. Um, and I'm sure Alistair can tell us about the, the, the stuff that they're, they're setting up now, precisely to help, help people um, who, who want to think about rewilding. Yeah, so we're, we're just um, developing uh, proposals for rewilding network. In fact, just before this conversation, I was uh, starting to add some detail in, into the content, which we aim to launch later this year via our website, which will uh, provide people with information and guidance on rewilding at all scales. Um, and uh, it will provide examples, case studies, uh, hopefully in future start to link link people up more and more so yeah watch this space please uh, subscribe to the rewilding britain newsletter which is freely which will be freely distributed via email um, keep an eye on the rewilding britain twitter account etc and uh, very soon we will have a rewilding network in britain which will be a, a massive step forward well, look, thank you so much, Alistair. Thank you, Derek. Thank you, Izzy. You're my heroes. I can't believe I've had the honour of chairing this discussion. We could have gone on for another three or four hours. Um, but with that, I think we'll sign off. And thank you to uh, Jane Kabuti of the Environmental Funders Network for um, putting this on and organising it. Jane is doing amazing work growing the pie of environmental philanthropy. Uh, for the benefit of the myriad environmental organisations in Britain which are striving to, to, to solve this issue and bring life back to our country. So thanks everyone. Thank you. Thanks, thanks Ben. ben.